This is At the Core of Care, a podcast where people share their stories about nurses and their creative efforts to better meet the health and healthcare needs of patients, families, and communities. I'm Sarah Hexham Hubbard, Executive Director of the Pennsylvania Action Coalition. This is part two of our series about refugee healthcare. If you missed the first episode, make sure to listen. For today's show, we're visiting Lancaster, where we'll hear how community stakeholders collaborate to address public health issues among refugees. Lancaster prides itself on a long tradition of providing sanctuary for people dating back to the 1600s, when religious groups fled here to escape persecution, including the Amish, who still live in the area in greater numbers than almost anywhere else. The feeling that everyone is welcome here, and it's not just a default everyone is welcome, it's an active welcoming of stranger that's a value in this community. Since the late 80s, about 8,000 refugees have settled in Lancaster, with annual arrival totals close to Philadelphia's numbers, sometimes greater in recent years. Providers in the city of 60,000 have struggled at times with such high demand relative to the community's size. And we're going to hear from people on the ground who figured out how to meet the need. For us, it was tight getting new patients in for a 40-minute appointment within 30 days uh, was really tight then. And so we problem-solved how to make it happen. We'll learn about the challenges and rewards of delivering care to refugees who arrive grateful that they're safe and eager for opportunities, but are often overwhelmed by culture shock and financial constraints. Not to mention the effects of spending years surrounded by violence, living in camps, uncertain of the future, in a healthcare setting, all of that is magnified. We'll also hear from nurses about the enormity of the responsibility they feel to deliver effective, culturally congruent care to patients who have endured so much. What bigger trauma can you go through than that kind of trauma? And I think, honestly, that is how we have to treat patients in general, but especially our refugee patients. I mean, just being uprooted from your country is trauma enough, I believe. I mean, this might be the first time they feel safe in years. Our producer, Stephanie Marudas of Covinda Media, got a first-hand look at Lancaster's system for delivering care to refugees. About a decade after a local nurse helped spearhead an initiative that would lead to the infrastructure that exists today. That work continues to evolve, but challenges remain. I'm Alice Yoder. I'm the Executive Director of Community Health at Penn Medicine Lancaster General Health. I met Alice to talk about refugee health care at the LGH campus outside of Lancaster City proper. It's late afternoon and the day's programs and patient traffic have wound down. I end up waiting in the Wellness Center, which I later found out that Alice started years ago. As I look around, I notice various pamphlets and flyers available on tables and displayed along the wall. There's all sorts of literature, from cutting tobacco use, to preventative care, to opioid addiction. Alice has been the head of community health at the hospital for nearly 30 years, and her job is far-reaching. But as she describes her career path, Alice seems accustomed to pivoting. So I actually had a friend when I was in high school and just about graduating from high school, and I wasn't quite sure about what I wanted to do from a career standpoint. And she mentioned nursing, and I thought, well, that, yeah, that sounds like a really good thing to do. I actually um, was playing the guitar, and I was in a band at the time and thought I could do that for life. <laughs> and, and then a few people said, well, maybe you might want to have a backup plan. And so I'm really glad I did. <laughs> it turned out to be a really good backup plan. <laughs> Alice was born in Manhattan, raised in Queens, and stayed in New York through college and the early phase of her career. 
when she was focusing on critical care. My mother had a heart attack at the age of 42, and so I think that's what drew me into specifically figuring out what's going on with cardiovascular disease in the community. Alice ended up in Lancaster, ultimately, because her husband's residency landed them here after Pittsburgh and Washington, D.C., where Alice worked in hospitals. At that point, being in critical care and seeing young men and women, you know, 40s, 50s, having heart attacks, that really got me wanting to study it more, understand it more. And so when I was in graduate school, any paper or any work that I can do in graduate school was focused on prevention. And um, Healthy People 2000 came about, the federal government's plan, you know, for setting goals around disease entities. And then there was a big focus around physical activity and nutrition. And that's, I really felt that that was healthcare and that was health. And that's where I started thinking more healthcare outside the walls of the hospital, as opposed to sick care of what the current system was within the United States. So when I finished graduate school, I actually proposed to Lancaster General to develop a wellness center here. I presented it to administration. A couple of months later, they called me and said, okay, let's start it. That was in 1992, and Alice has since built up the wellness center to what it is today. And at a certain point, it became apparent to Alice that Lancaster General Health would need to step up to help provide a more efficient system of refugee health care for the area. By 2009, Lancaster's resettlement agencies had run into a problem. They weren't consistently helping refugees get their post-arrival medical screenings within the time frame required by the federal government. Basically, before refugees even get permission to come to the United States, they have to pass a background check. That can take years. But once approved, they can go ahead to get the required physicals and vaccinations before their departure. And when they finally do arrive in the U.S., they have a month to complete another round of vaccinations and evaluations, including a mental health screening. Lancaster General was approached by the Department of Health. There seemed to be an access problem. And they wanted to think about if the hospital would open up a clinic to be able to address that need and that there would be a grant available to do that. So the Department of Health contacted us to see if we would be interested in doing that. Alice reached out to other refugee providers in Lancaster, which at the time included two federally qualified health centers. Southeast Lancaster Health Center, now the Lancaster Health Center, served as the main provider for refugees. And there was another one, Welsh Mountain, which picked up some patients that Lancaster Health Center couldn't serve. But refugees weren't getting seen by a primary care doctor and completing their screenings within 30 days as required. Instead of us going, okay, we'll just develop a clinic, we look to see who's already working with refugees already in our community, bring them together, let them know what the situation, and do sort of a community rethink about the process we have in place, and then what can we do collectively that would make this as smooth as possible for the refugees and provide the right type of care. And then we sort of imagine what can be done another way. And when we map things out, we really saw that our federally qualified health center in the city, Lancaster Health Center, was the center that was seeing refugees the most and had really built a certain amount of uh, cultural competency around it, which was really important too when we start thinking about how we wanted to come together to do this. We wanted to make sure there was cultural competency. But what Alice found out was they just didn't have the space and staff to handle the influx. She looked internally, too, within Lancaster General and found out the hospital did see some refugees, just not that many. But she saw an opportunity. 
the head of our family practice residency program thought the experience for family practice residents to actually see refugees was just a selling point for the program as well, and that they were really looking for a way to make this happen. And then Water Street Health Services had the space. So we just moved the residents there, and that's how we were able to open up a clinic within a pretty short period of time. It was great because everybody was so eager to actually pitch in and want to do their part to make this happen. Because also the other free clinics, besides the one where physically the clinic was located, basically said they could be a backup. So our goal was all to do what needed to happen. So we had the end in mind where we began to track all the refugees that came into our community and map out when they did get their physical. And then our goal was that we're going to keep on meeting and keep on tracking until everyone that comes in actually gets their physical within the month's period of time. Eight months later, they were back on track. And at that point, not only had providers figured out how to comply with resettlement rules for initial post-arrival screenings, they'd created an infrastructure for delivering care and called it the Lancaster Refugee Health Network. Alice also worked with the State Office of Refugee Resettlement to fine-tune the evaluations and procedures that ended up as models for communities throughout Pennsylvania. From the very beginning... Dr. Kelly Reese had been involved in helping to create this new delivery of refugee health care in Lancaster. She's been a provider at the Lancaster Health Center for 12 years and is going to explain what the process entails. They have their exam there just to make sure that they don't have any significant health problem. That, and, and there's actually only a few things that would really exclude them from coming here. Active TB, um, leprosy, I think they're pretty much the only ones. And then if they have any medical problems that might cause a problem on the airplane and might need a medical escort, then that gets identified and some of them come with a medical escort or like oxygen or something, whatever they might need. And then if they are going to need follow-up when they get here, those issues get identified and reported to their resettlement agency so they can be seen sooner. And then by law, all refugees are required to be seen within 30 days of arrival. So when they get seen, we screen them for a lot of different infectious diseases like tuberculosis, HIV, hepatitis A, B, and C, gonorrhea, chlamydia, parasites, and then just kind of general screening blood work. Kelly's treated many refugee patients since she started in 2007. She's also watched how Lancaster's annual resettlement rates continued to rise for most of that time and how the health care delivery was changed. In 2012, three years after the Lancaster Refugee Healthcare Network got underway, local stakeholders came together again to figure out how to better serve the ever-growing refugee population. This time, the focus and mission went beyond health care. The Lancaster County Refugee Coalition ended up forming and absorbing the Refugee Health Network and bringing in other partners, Franklin and Marshall College, local resettlement agencies, and regional foundations, among others, including the Lancaster Health Center, where Kelly works. We got into refugee health care kind of by accident. When we first started here, we only had two sites. We had our Duke Street site, which was the original site, and then they had just opened the site at Brightside. And really, Duke Street wasn't taking new patients, and Brightside was, and that's where we got placed. 
and the refugees were coming as new patients. And so they pretty much all got scheduled with us at Brightside. And so little by little, we kind of learned how to, how to care for them and kind of really got to love refugee health care. The Lancaster Health Center now has five sites throughout the city. Kelly told me how her work in Lancaster evolved out of her residency at the Hopi Reservation in northern Arizona. I was used to the caring for people of a different culture, so I think I was sensitive to that. And I kind of liked that from my experience on the Indian Reservation. We saw Hopi and Navajo patients, and their two different cultures really added kind of a different feel or aspect to providing their care and seeing our refugees here. Uh, then it was a lot of Nepali and Burmese and and even like different ethnic groups of Burmese. So kind of learning those different ways of looking at health and different ways of receiving health care, I think was really interesting to me. Several years ago, Kelly and Alice collaborated on a report about the refugee health system in Lancaster. Part of it details the varying degrees of how familiar refugees are with American health care. Bhutanese, Burmese, and Iraqi refugees account for the majority of refugees resettled in Lancaster and the rest of Pennsylvania over the past decade. And they need more support in this respect than people from some other countries, such as Cuba, because the Cuban and American medical system are much more similar. For example, even with a translator, providers might not fully understand symptoms as described by refugees from those countries. Pharmacies, follow-up procedures, specialist referrals, and health insurance either work differently or simply don't exist in any recognizable form in their home countries. Different cultures have different knowledge about healthcare, so there is kind of a range of acceptance and understanding. A lot of our refugees have seen HIV, they've seen TB, tuberculosis, and so when you talk about those diseases and say that we've screened you for those things and they're negative, they really understand that and they're really grateful for that kind of information. Other things, they don't really have a lot of understanding about like some of the STDs or hepatitis, they don't really understand it. Some of the languages, there's not words for those diseases or even body parts. Like in Swahili, patients talk about their spleen as a stone in their belly. And sometimes the discussion about diseases, it's hard to know what, how those things get interpreted. But in general, I think they're happy to know that you did those tests and things were good. There's also some fear about taking all those tubes of blood because all those tests is like 12 tubes of blood. And some of our patients really don't have any understanding about the body and and how blood is made and they think like you're just taking all their blood and they're not going to have any left so we kind of have to talk about that sometimes kelly says refugee health care is especially magnified when it comes to mental health she says the models she's found most effective for delivering care look quite different from what we typically see in the u.s There's a list of questions that the state has come up with in kind of an order that they want us to ask them. And pretty much all refugees say that they're not having any problems at all, like mentally. So if you could imagine yourself, how you would feel if you were sent to another country where you didn't speak the language, didn't know anything about the way that they lived in that place. And somebody said, like, how are you feeling? How are you sleeping? Are you eating okay? Like, they all say they're fine. And... Part of that, I think, is just they don't want to get sent back. 
that there's stigma related to mental health and they're afraid if they admit to anything that we're just going to say, well, then, you know, go back. But also, I think they have spent a lifetime of putting those things behind them. So they've kind of kept a lot hidden. And a lot of our refugees have gone through significant trauma that we could really never understand. And really, like, it's hard to get good services here for mental health and really for our refugees. The language barrier is just huge. It's hard to do any kind of significant mental health discussion with that long, awkward pause with the interpreter. But then also cultural issues. Sometimes we ask those questions of the Congolese women and they just say like, well, I'm from the Congo. What do you think happened to me? And that's their answer. And so like, I really can't think of what happened to them and like what they could have gone through. So those cultural differences are really hard to navigate. And then just basics like gender, like a lot of women don't want to talk to men. So if all the counselors are men, they might not disclose things that they want to talk about. The things that I've experienced that have been really helpful for our refugees is some group activities. So not necessarily getting them into a one-on-one experience with a counselor, but group activities. We have a social worker who for a while was doing a Nepali women's group and she was teaching them English. And that same group, I had them for a couple sessions where I was teaching them about mammograms and pap smears and colonoscopies. And we had a woman who was kind of new to the group, a new refugee. And she said, uh, I was at home getting sicker and sicker. My head was hurting, my stomach was hurting, and now I've been coming to this group and I feel well again. So that kind of thing, I think all of our refugees are really used to living in an extended family and then like really close together, like really close to their neighbors who they knew really well. And here they're really dispersed. So having ways that they can kind of get together, not necessarily to talk about their problems, but to talk about something and then to see each other. I think that is helpful for mental health. One of Kelly's colleagues showed me a wall of photographic portraits of various refugees who've received care through the Lancaster Health Center. Kelly's colleague, Isari Plaza, is an LPN and the practice manager for the New Holland Avenue location of the Lancaster Health Center. This is our wall of fame, I believe. All of the people you see with their story are our actual patients. So that's their photos. We've asked if they would want to, and they were very appreciative, and they did. They want to share their story. So we have a picture and then a little kind of blurb about where they came from and why they're here and their experience so far. One of the ladies, and she's... I keep saying my favorite patient. They're all my favorite patient. She speaks English fairly well. She speaks Arabic, and now her English language has really grown. Like, she really speaks it well, and um, she still has her accent, and she'll say that, you know, but she can understand, and she doesn't need the translator anymore. Like, she feels comfortable, and she says it's been such an amazing experience being here at Lancaster Health Center. She's so appreciative of how we've helped her kind of, you know, navigate the healthcare system. 
So this is a lady from the Congo. Her husband and seven children there was nothing but war and conflict in their native Congo, which has seen some of the deadliest struggles in modern African history. The family escaped to Rwanda to a refugee camp. When they arrived in Lancaster, she attended classes every day to learn English, the alphabet numbers from zero to 100 in the days and months. Her goal was to get a job and she soon found one at Tyson Foods. Next, she will learn to drive. Her husband is working as are two adult children. Two other children are in training programs at Job Corps and three are in school. They have decorated their home in familiar warm colors to reflect their hope for a bright future. Um, and this is kind of like a quote from them. It said, in Rwanda, there was good workers, nice workers who have kind hearts. They interviewed us and we were able to come here where it is safe. There is security for us now. The way of living is good. Isare knows it isn't necessarily easy. A lot of times we'll get their date of arrival and, you know, within five days, they're here for an appointment. Could you imagine, like, you just stepped off of, you know, an airplane or whatever into a brand new country. And now here I am at a doctor's office with all these people who most of them don't look like me anyway. It's a little intimidating. She can relate, having moved from Puerto Rico to Lancaster as a young child. And I'm just saying that from experience, because when I came here a long time ago, the Hispanic population wasn't as big as it is now. So, you know, a lot of people didn't look like me and it is intimidating. And then you're being poked and prodded and it's our job, as difficult as it might sound, it's our job to make that experience feel like a safe experience. Isari was six when her mother moved here with her three younger siblings and another one on the way. It was different, obviously. Um, you grow up in Puerto Rico, and back then, it was a lot of dirt roads. And I still remember, like, for the mail, we'd walk to the end of town, and it was like a big circle of people, and the mailman would stand there and call out your name, and you grab the letters. And then we came here to the United States. It was really different. You know, your mail came to your home, which was a big change. I mean, we had sidewalks everywhere. and But everyone seemed friendly, hard to understand people you know, in the beginning, but I think we adapted well. Her decision to go into nursing stemmed partly from her early healthcare experiences in Lancaster. This is my career because I want to help people. I want to make sure that everyone, whether they speak English, Spanish, you know, Nepali, doesn't matter what language, um, where they come from, I want to make sure that they have the best care possible. And that's actually one of the reasons I work here at Lancaster Health Center, because we serve such a diverse population. And to me, I feel like we serve the patients that need us the most. And it's amazing and fulfilling. And I want to do for other people what was at one point, not at another, done for us. You go to some doctors that are great and nurses who really care about their patients. And then you encounter other people who their passion really isn't patients. Their passion is maybe, you know, hey, this is a great job and I can move forward and you're just another number and you don't even understand what I'm saying, even though we did. Um, so let's get you moving. And, you know, it's really difficult when you go to a physician and the nurse sits there and kind of says, derogatory comments about your family. One, you're a large family. You're an immigrant family. You don't speak English very well. 
And then they make comments about that. You know, you might not speak the English language well, you might have an accent, but more than likely you understand. And patients get a feel. So if you're truly not caring about your patients, whether you speak English or not, you can feel that. And even though my mother didn't speak English without the accent, she knew enough to move on and find other resources. But to me, it was a great experience because now I know how I do want to treat patients and how I do not want to treat patients. And as the practice manager here at New Holland Avenue, I hold all the nursing staff to that expectation. How old were you when you, do you know when that happened? I must have been, I don't know, maybe eight, nine. I was a little older at that moment. And yeah, and it was kind of devastating because at this point, I already knew English pretty well. In a Hispanic family, your mom does all the talking. You know, you don't interrupt. And it was almost like I felt my mom's devastation, like embarrassment because of the comment that was made. And I was like, wow, she has no clue. She didn't even, you know, to me, my mom's my hero. She had five children, immigrated, went to school. You know, she was amazing. And we also had medical assistance insurance, not because my mother was not employed. She worked full time, but it was five of us. And the insurance was really expensive. So we did have medical assistant insurance, and that was kind of the comment they made. Like, here comes kind of like another welfare mom. And, and it was devastating. Isari is emphatic about this point and believes providers shouldn't judge their patients. And she says this comes across in the way the Lancaster Health Center stresses the importance of understanding patients' full situation. And her co-worker, Jackie Brysak, a nurse practitioner, definitely embodies this outlook. When you're working across sort of like a cultural divide, I think staying humble regardless is really important to providing care, even if you have had experiences to sort of retain that, well, I can never truly know everything you've been through, even if I have had experiences, even if I visited where you grew up, or even if I had other patients from where you are, like I can never truly understand and to sort of keep that in mind with everyone that you meet, whether they're from here or somewhere on the other side of the world is important to providing good care. Jackie has been a nurse practitioner for five years, and she's worked at the Lancaster Health Center for the past two years. Her first nursing job was with the Baltimore City Health Department, and before that, Jackie served in the Peace Corps in Bolivia and also AmeriCorps in the Bronx. I studied international relations as an undergrad, and I always felt this longing for something that felt just very essential and real and connected. So when I graduated, I decided that would either be agriculture or health, either taking care of people or growing them food. So so I signed up for the Peace Corps and I had no health experience, but I had been raised on a farm. So they said that counts as enough experience to be an agriculture volunteer. (laughs) So um, went off to Bolivia and realized that I wasn't very good at growing things at all. But I did like talking to people about their health and the women in the community, I think maybe just even as an outsider or maybe because they knew I had like gone to college and stuff, the women in my community would just come to me with their questions. And I just really liked that role to just offer whatever advice I could. So then when I came back to the U.S., I decided the healthcare was the right route for me. And um, I was sort of debating between medical school and nursing school. But I think somewhere along the line, I read that A nurse's primary role is to be an advocate for their patient above all else, and that just really resonated with me, as well as there's a lower barrier to entry at a nursing school, which I think makes it more open to folks of different SES backgrounds. 
So then that's how I came into nursing was sort of from that desire to provide something essential as well as a social justice sort of background. While Jackie brings this approach to her day-to-day practice, she says communication with patients is a constant challenge. A large portion of our staff is fluent in Spanish and English. So for those folks, we'll tend to do just one-on-one translation. We do have access to the language line if that's needed. And we do have language services for the vast majority of the languages that we see for French, Swahili, Nepali. We do have a few Nepali medical assistants that work with us. So that's really, really wonderful to have them for language when needed and also just sort of for cultural translation too, because there's so much that we can miss not being a native of not just that language, but of that culture. Every once in a while, there will be a language that doesn't have maybe half a million or a million speakers that it can be really difficult to find translation services for. So that's been a little bit of a sticky wicket. Um, Some of the Mayan languages from Central America, as well as a couple of languages from Ethiopia, Eritrea region. So there's still some folks that come in where it can be a struggle and, you know, we'll have to find someone from the community or use a different language service in order to provide them the translation services that they need. Back in 2012, when Alice and Kelly surveyed local providers, they found a prevalent fear that something would get lost in translation or there would be cultural disconnects, leaving providers, patients, or both without critical information. Jackie says building trust can help bridge that divide, but that it also requires navigating cultural differences at the same time. It's hard when you don't know that much about their experience or that much about their language to sort of work through that. There's also a tendency amongst some of our Congolese patients, and I don't totally know where it comes from, but if I have been told that maybe it's when they're stressed or not understanding something where they'll sort of laugh. And so when you're trying to emphasize the seriousness of something, then someone laughs. In our context, that's like, but no, it's really serious. <laughs> and it's like a nervous laugh, maybe. It's a nervous laugh, and that can be really, really hard to deal with and hard to understand and really hard to break through. I think we could benefit from having, and we've brought some of the resettlement agencies to sort of provide some cultural competency education for the providers, but the Congolese context is really tough. Jackie thinks it would be helpful to have more refugees delivering the actual care. And there is a program for refugees who've worked in the medical field in their countries of origin to be able to earn U.S.-recognized credentials. It's part of the National Institute for Medical Assistant Advancement, or NEMA, And it's focused on training people from underserved communities to provide care. Something that I also hope for, at least in our Lancaster community, is more folks from the immigrant and refugee communities becoming nurses, becoming physicians, because then they're sort of like a conduit to their community. Like, oh, no, that is a good clinic. You can go there and, you know, there's someone from your community that can sort of help translate what might be going on and help sort of build trust in that community. That is something that I think has been really wonderful. We had, I don't know what the status of it is now, but we had a NEMA program here. It is a program to train medical assistants. Some of the Cuban physicians who have resettled here, some of the folks from all over the world who have come as immigrants and refugees have gone through that program and work here now as medical assistants. Right now I have, um, I work alongside one Cuban physician who went through the NEMA program, one woman from Nepal, and another woman from Ethiopia. And so we're all sort of working together to provide care for our patients. And they're all on their own journeys as to like where in the healthcare system they eventually want to land. 
the Cuban physician I work with is determined to be a physician again and is on his road to a residency program. One of the nurses is thinking about continuing her education into nursing and asked me lots of questions about what it's like to be a nurse practitioner. And the other one I think is a little bit newer of a medical assistant. She's just sort of working on this right now and this is plenty. Lancaster Health Center's new CEO, Elisa Jones, echoes Jackie's point. She says the organization supports refugees being able to pursue medical careers. A couple of years ago, there were many Cuban refugees, and we had folks with medical backgrounds, and so we were able to hire them into medical assisting and other clinical roles. And now, just a few years later, the majority of them have left to go back to nursing school. So it's not just a fantastic way to make sure that you're including folks and giving them meaningful work. And then the organization has the advantage of having that workforce. But then you also see how they as individuals and their families are continuing to be able to take the next step. Elisa says having refugees on staff is critical to delivering effective care. But while she readily admits the limitations providers without lived experience can face in this setting... She's also adamant that they can nonetheless empathize with their patients. And so what I think we're trying to do here at Lancaster Health Center, and we've started with our leadership team, we've spent now upwards of 10 hours really focused on the work we have to do internally, our own work to understand our own motivations, our own ways of thinking, some of those perspectives that we might have that could be hindering where we're going. And it all starts with us. It all starts with looking at ourselves first. And regardless of maybe our personal backgrounds, we've all had moments where we feel alone in any capacity, where we feel as though no one could possibly understand what we're feeling right now. We feel that people have made judgments about us that are so wrong So regardless of how you had that experience, when you can tap into that feeling, even though it doesn't feel great, that is the feeling that many of our patients feel every day, all day. So you feel that for one minute and then imagine what that would feel like. And if you can start to create some awareness about that, when we create new policies around being late to your visit, when we create new policies around how many pieces of paper you have to show up with before you can get care, when we connect to that feeling, it's harder to create barriers. But when we disconnect from that feeling and we start to say, well, you know, I did it, they could do it, or, you know, it's just showing up on time, or they have to learn how to be able to show up on time, or why can't they keep themselves organized? To me, those are things that you say when you disconnect from the feeling of being alone. And the more that we can make it so that that connection is for everybody, Now, you need people with lived experience because they have a unique perspective, but I don't think that we should say that if you don't have lived experience, you can't connect because you can. Absolutely, you can. And this is a sentiment that has shaped Elisa's executive leadership in the world of community health. She ran La Comunidad Hispana in Chester County, which is a federally qualified health center that you can hear about in another one of our At the Core of Care episodes. I think every community health center feels different because it takes on the DNA of the community that it serves. So different in that way, Uh, similar in that they're both community health centers and with the designation of being federally qualified health centers, which means that we serve everybody regardless of ability to pay. And we really specialize in the service for underserved communities. So in that way, it's similar, but brand new people, brand new community, and I am in absolute learning mode. 
Elisa says she hadn't even heard of nurse managed health centers until the Affordable Care Act took effect. I worked in state government and state public health, and we had the job of reading all 5,000 pages of the Affordable Care Act. And I remember seeing nurse managed health centers and thinking, interesting. I wonder what that is. And then the opportunity to work at La Comunidad Hispana came up, and it is a nurse-managed health center and has a history as one. So it's been one for almost 50 years. So seeing it in action, I think, was such a privilege, you know, to see nurse leadership, to cultivate nurse leadership, very different in some ways, very similar in other ways. I think what makes that model very unique is the therapeutic relationship. It's different. I will describe it this way, because I have friends across all discipline spectrums in healthcare, physicians, nurse practitioners, PAs, other advanced practice clinicians, and others. In a nurse-managed health center, I am more likely to see, at the end of a visit, the nurse practitioner walk out with the patient, and there is a hug. There is a, a hand on the shoulder. There is wiping of some tears. It's a different therapeutic relationship, and I think... It is so important for communities, especially, I think, communities that are marginalized, communities that have a strong history of trauma, first-generation or multi-generational, to have clinicians who are bringing all the wonderful knowledge in their head, but they're also bringing the heart, because sometimes what we need is the heart to be healed. While the organization greatly values empathy and comprehensive, culturally congruent care, Elisa says there's a need for the staff to better reflect the population served. Right now, Lancaster Health Center doesn't track staff demographics. That's always a challenge. But I think there's, you know, providing career pathways for folks, providing that support, also them having the opportunity to see that the organization doesn't just say that it values promoting from within, but it actually does it, that we quantify how often we do it, and that we have positions where you can see yourself reflected. And I think that makes a difference. It may not be all of it, but, you know, you see someone that looks like you in the position that you might want to have in, you know, three, five, seven years. And Alice from Lancaster General has deliberated with her colleagues over the years to what extent the health system should engage refugees in delivering care within their own communities. We don't allow family, we don't allow friends to translate, and the community becomes so small, and the questions we're asking are so personal. And, you know, we know particularly the refugees have gone through lots of trauma and issues within their life, and our hope is that we develop relationship and trust with the refugee who is our patient, knowing that everything they bring with them and that it's going to take time. But we know to get to the root of really helping them address their problems and their issues and improving their health is for them to be able to disclose a little better. And that takes time and it takes trust. So we're just concerned about that piece that they can separate, you know, when they go back into their community that they're not going to see that other person that just heard everything that they told, or they might not tell us everything because of the person that is the translator. So we have focused more on keeping that somewhat separate. In Lancaster, Alice says there's still work to be done, especially around the chain of communication, and she's actively working on it. Just coincidence, last week met with the Church World Services around some refugees that were coming into the hospital for a procedure, and the language that they spoke was not a typical language. And we have many language capabilities, and the state has set up a system to make that happen, and the resettlement organizations really help us with that as well. But there are a few refugees that have a certain dialect where it makes it 
difficult to communicate. So we're actually looking at a system now to do a better job with that. So we're looking at an early heads up now, so a regular communication with the refugee resettlement organizations to basically say, send an email to someone at our health facility saying next month we're bringing in X amount of refugees and these are the countries they're coming from and these are the languages that they speak so that we know ahead of time. And so if a flag goes up that it's something we're not used to, we're going to figure out a way to be prepared. It's pretty common to see communication lapses among resettlement agencies and schools, medical clinics, and other service providers before refugees arrive. And even the Federal Government Accountability Office flagged the problem in a 2012 report, urging more dialogue and consultation. Alice seems confident they'll figure it out. I've always thought that nursing really, going through the education to be a nurse, really focused on the patient and how we can improve care for the patient. And you do whatever you need to do in order to make that happen. So I just would always think that way from simple dressing change or whether it's bathing or giving medications, but then to think broader, particularly when you start looking out into the community, well, how do we make this better for the patient and how do we get the care to happen the best we can. And the we is not just me, and the we is not just the organization I work for. The we is the community overall and many organizations. So how do we bring others together to improve the care? And I think it's just sort of starting out very micro from a nursing standpoint, but the thinking was embedded in my mind from going to nursing school and to college for it, that it just transformed into community systems thinking, focused on the individual. Special thanks to Alice Yoder, Elisa Jones, Kelly Reese, Isari Plaza, and Jackie Brysek for taking time to talk with us. Funding for this podcast comes from the Center to Champion Nursing in America, which is a joint initiative of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, AARP, and the AARP Foundation, along with the Pennsylvania Action Coalition. The Pennsylvania Action Coalition is housed at the National Nurse-Led Care Consortium, a subsidiary of Public Health Management Corporation. You can find out more about us and our programs at paactioncoalition.org. Follow us on social media at PA Action. We'd love to hear from you. Stephanie Marudas of Covinda Media is our producer, and we had production assistance from Brad Linder. I'm Sarah Hexham Hubbard of the Pennsylvania Action Coalition. Thanks for joining us. Until next time.